Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in the book of Romans, chapter 1, as we consider the calling of the Apostle Paul unto the gospel of God. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father, what a daunting task it is to even stand here this morning and begin this endeavor. And yet it is your word. It has been given to us for not only our instruction, but for our edification, for our encouragement, for our lives. It is In it is everything necessary, as Peter says, for life and for godliness. And I pray that this morning you would give us a clarity of thought. Let our ears be open to hear and our hearts ready to receive. Might you give me not only a clarity of thought, but an accuracy of speech in communicating your word, your truth to your people today. If anything of any value is accomplished in this time that we have together this morning, It will be because of your word and the Holy Spirit who brings it to life and the minds and hearts of those who hear. So, Spirit of God, have your way as you move in our midst this morning to accomplish your good will and pleasure concerning us pertaining to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This is, as I said in my prayer, a daunting task, a daunting task for any preacher, any pastor to undertake. Uh, When one considers the volumes, literally the volumes of commentary that have been authored by hundreds, if not thousands, of commentators and writers on this particular letter in our Bibles, to to endeavor to preach it is extremely humbling. Now, compound this with the assessments of some of the greatest Bible commentators and theologians in the history of the church in regards to this letter. And you might ask yourself, why attempt such a thing? For example, Augustine considered this letter to be, and I quote him, the most basic, most basic, most comprehensive statement of Christianity, end of quote. Martin Luther described Romans as, quote, the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, end of quote. Matthew Henry, in his introduction to Romans in his commentary, writes this. This epistle to the Romans is placed first 
among Paul's New Testament letters, not because of the priority of its date, but because of the superlative excellency of the epistle. End of quote. And by others, the letter to the Romans, the letter to the Romans has been called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith, the theological tour de force or masterpiece, Paul's magnum opus or Paul's most important work. John Chrysostom, Patriarch of Constantinople in AD 397, who was a gifted preacher. In fact, his very name means golden mouth, would have Romans read over to him twice a week. The impact of this letter on the Christian church cannot, cannot be overestimated. It is a theological doctrinal powerhouse. And this is exactly, exactly why it warrants our study. Now, unquestionably, the epistle was authored, as I said a few weeks ago, by the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, a Pharisee from Tarsus and Cilicia. We saw that in Acts chapter 21, verses 39, and Acts chapter 22, verse 3. And the very first word of the epistle identifies the author as Paul. There is solid evidence that Paul wrote this letter during his stay in Corinth towards the end of his third missionary journey. Remember, Paul took three missionary journeys, a final journey outside of those three missionary journeys where he was actually arrested in Rome and taken, uh, arrested in Jerusalem and taken back to Rome. Now, we gather this from what Paul himself writes in the last chapter of this letter. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul mentions Phoebe a servant of the church at Corinth. And in 1623 of Romans, Paul mentions Gaius and Erastus, both associated with the church in Corinth. In fact, it was Phoebe, we're told, in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, that delivered Paul's letter to Rome. Here was a faithful female servant who delivered Paul's letter from Corinth to the church in Rome. Now, at the time of his writing, or the writing of this letter, to the church at Rome, which was dated around A.D. 55 to 57. And most scholars say probably the year of A.D. 56 is when this letter was written and was delivered to Rome. Paul had yet to personally visit there. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 13. Paul said, I long to come to you. I'm looking. I was prohibited, in fact, in coming from you. And it would not be until his return to Jerusalem, when, as I said a moment ago, he delivered the offering that was collected from the churches in Macedonia for those poor saints in Jerusalem. It was not until he, his return to Jerusalem where he took that offering and was subsequently arrested by the Romans and his appeal to go to Caesar that he actually made his way to Rome. Much later. The question then arises, you've got to ask yourself this question, if Paul had not yet been there, then who was responsible for starting this church? How did this church in Rome get started? Who was the person that went there and started the church? This was the capital of the Roman Empire. It was a very highly populated metropolis. So who was responsible for starting the church? Well, the, the simple answer is that we're not told. Nowhere in our New Testament is the, is the one who was responsible, an individual responsible for starting the church in Rome. Nowhere is that name given to us. It doesn't give us that information. But many have speculated, and I believe that the speculation is pretty accurate, probably is right, is that the church was started by converts returning to Rome after Pentecost, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. 
In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, we're told that there were visitors in Jerusalem at the event of Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, that were from Rome. It specifically says visitors from Rome. So here they are, they're Jewish visitors to Jerusalem at Pentecost who experienced the Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit, are brought into faith in Christ, and then they return home. And when they return home, more than likely, and we can safely speculate, that they went back carrying the gospel to Rome, and that's where the church actually began in Rome. The notion that the church in Rome was started by the Apostle Peter as the first pope is without any biblical support. The fact Paul's extensive letter, nowhere, if you read all of Romans, this is a very detailed, very succinct letter. Nowhere in this letter does Paul refer to Peter. And you would think of someone as significant as Peter, had he been responsible for starting the church or was there ministering, that certainly Paul would have addressed him. And I also asked the question, why would Paul feel it necessary to send such a a deep theological treatise to a people who had apostolic teaching. And so that kind of discounts the fact that Peter was the one who started the church and that Peter was even there. That Paul's letter nowhere addresses Peter, a key figure in the church. Now, with this in mind, we gather that the church at Rome had not experienced direct apostolic instruction. In other words, none of the apostles had actually been to Rome to teach this church. And this is what precipitated Paul's writing this letter. In fact, many, if most of all Paul's epistles are written to address, if you think about this, look at his epistles, 12 of them in the New Testament, taking Romans out of the mix for a moment. Almost all, if virtually all of Paul's writings in the New Testament are written to address a specific error. He's correcting false teaching that has entered the church. That is not the case with Romans. In fact, what Romans is, Romans doesn't seek necessarily to correct any error, but what it seeks to do is establish apostolic truth. It seeks to establish doctrinal truth in a church that probably has grown and is continuing to grow that now needs direct apostolic instruction. Since there's no one there to teach them, Paul writes this letter to teach them. And so this is... This is many, if not most of all, Paul's epistles were were written to correct error, but it's not the case here. Paul wrote this letter to accomplish two things. He tells you, number one, to introduce himself to the church. Remember, they'd never met him. And secondly, to teach apostolic doctrine, the truths of the gospel of God's grace, salvation by grace alone, especially the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and God's righteousness imputed through Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And so when we look at our solas, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, this is the letter that lays all that out for us. That's Paul's purpose in writing this letter, is to bring to them the gospel of God's sovereign grace. To bring to them the message of God's grace, to bring them the message of God's justification, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to believers. And that's exactly what he lays down. Now, this is not in my notes, but I'm thinking about this as I share this with you. Is that, is there not, I don't think of a better time than right now for us to revisit these doctrinal truths. Because there is an overwhelming undercurrent moving through evangelical Christianity that challenges those very doctrinal foundations. 
The doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to believers. There's a whole new movement out there in evangelical Christianity moving through some of our most prominent seminaries called the New Perspective on Paul, where they're actually trying to completely reinterpret Paul's theology. And separate, and I'll say more about this in just a moment, separating it from the foundational teaching of the gospel given to us by Jesus Christ. So I think it's a great time to visit this book. It's a great time to reestablish ourselves in the doctrines of God's grace and the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of imputation of the righteousness of Christ and all that for the glory of God. In fact, listen to the words of of Dr. Stephen J. Lawson written in volume one of his three volume set. I don't think volume three is out yet. It's called Foundations of Grace. I received them a few years ago, the first couple, and they are outstanding. If you want some tremendous reading, you need to pick up those volumes and read it. But Dr. Lawson writes in his first volume on Foundations of Grace in regards to Paul and his epistle to the Romans. Listen to what Dr. Lawson writes. He says, quote, nowhere, nowhere in Paul's writings is the purity of the grace of God more vividly displayed than in his letter to the Romans. And I'd give a resounding amen. This book is the greatest treatise, Lawson continues, on the purest expression of the saving grace of God ever written. It is a virtual systematic theology, especially in the area of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. End of quote. Now, let's now look at Paul's introduction written for us in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, which I read to you. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Pause for a moment. Paul, in his introduction, says nothing about his former life, in Judaism, nor his persecution of the church in Jerusalem, but immediately identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word translated servant in most English translations, yours may say bond servant, or it may say servant, but the, the word that is translated in most English translations is actually the Greek word doulos, which more accurately more accurately could be translated. And in in fact, the the Holman's Christian Bible actually does translate it this way correctly. It's translated slave or bond servant. I don't care how you research the word doulos, you'll find that's what it means. It clearly means slave. We cleaned up the translations a little bit because of the negative connotations that such terminology has, even to the use of the word bond servant, and I'll explain that more in just a moment. But in the Hebrew culture, the word meant something different than it meant in the Greek culture. In the Greek culture, for example, the word doulos as it would be translated in the Greek Septuagint from the Hebrew translations of the Scripture. But in the Greek culture, for example, the the word doulos or slave referred to one in the service of a master, often unwillingly. Now, just for a brief moment, think with me the difference between a slave and a servant. A servant is usually what? A hired hand. In other words, a servant receives compensation for the work that he does. He comes to work like a normal person. He works, he receives his wages, he goes home and has his life. That's not the life of a slave. 
A a slave is in service really often unwillingly. And so such a slave in the Greek culture was deemed by the culture as little more than property. And the treatment of that slave depended primarily on the benevolence of the owner or the master. They could be treated well, often as a family member, or as I said, they could be treated poorly like other property. In fact, in Roman culture, a a slave master had the right to literally kill his slave and would suffer no consequences legally for doing so. If that slave abandoned him or slave failed to perform his duties or for some other reason violated the confidence of the master, the master had the right to slay him, and there were no legal ramifications for doing that. That was in the Greek, and that was in the Roman culture. However, it was completely different in the Hebrew culture, completely different. In the Hebrew sense of the word, it could refer to one who would willingly, now catch this, willingly commit himself to a master. It would be committing to a master that he loved and respected. And so hence you would receive, hear the word bond servant. In other words, he was bound to his master, but he was bound to his master in willing service. This is exactly... This is exactly how Paul uses the word here with the Hebrew meaning in mind. Paul is not saying, I am a slave unwillingly to a master. That's not at all what he's saying. When he says a servant of Jesus Christ, he is saying in the truest Hebrew sense of the word, I am a bond servant. I am a slave willingly to a master who I love and a master I know who loves me. And that is exactly the picture That he's paying for us. Nevertheless, the word still strongly implies that the servant, the doulos, is at the disposal of the master. Don't miss that. Even though he is a bond servant, even though he may be a servant and a slave in the sense of the Hebrew use of the word, he is still at the disposal of the master. And Paul never loses this. Never loses the reality of that great truth. The one who has taken his life, literally arrested him and brought him into his service. Paul never, never, never forgets the idea that he is at the disposal of this master. From the moment of his conversion on the road to Damascus, recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, Paul became the willing subject, the willing servant, the willing slave of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9 verse 5, Paul, for the first time, calls Jesus Lord. In fact, the Greek word kurios is actually a word we translate Lord in our English translations, but it's a word that means master. So if you think about it this way, one servant calls his employer master, but slaves call their masters masters. And so in reality, when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, and there he is smitten to the ground and encompassed in great light, Paul looks into the light and says, Who are you, Kurios? Who are you, Master? And from that very very moment on, Paul knew this was a master-slave, bond-servant relationship. He was indisposably at the service of this one that had arrested him. Let me interject something here, folks. It is no different for us. It is absolutely no different from us. We have this lackadaisical, this shallow 
um, notion today in regards of our relationship with our Lord. It's almost like he's our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our buddy. And we've completely lost the, the notion, the fact that we are his servants. We are his bondservants. We are his slaves. He is our master. Yes, willingly and lovingly, but it doesn't change the reality. That he possesses us. He owns us. He has bought us with a price. The price of heaven's currency, the blood of his beloved son. That is what we have been purchased with. And never cease seeing his relationship as we should never cease seeing our relationship with him that way. Paul never wavered in his understanding that he was first and foremost a slave of Jesus Christ. Now in the second part of his introduction, Paul refers to his calling. Look at what he says here. He says, called to be an apostle. His calling here, and I want you to note this, his, his calling here has a dual significance. There is in it his calling first to salvation. And here's a dual significance. There's, there's in it a, his calling to salvation. Paul was well aware of the fact that he had been called to salvation, had been saved by sovereign grace. As the least likely, in his own estimation of himself, as the least likely candidate for salvation, Paul stood as a living example of salvation by grace alone. But there's another significant truth in Paul's statement here. He says, called, yes, but called to be an apostle. From the very beginning of his Christian life, Paul understood that he was a chosen instrument. If you go back to Acts chapter 9, and we won't do that for time's sake, you'll remember that after the Lord Jesus arrested Paul on the road to Damascus, and he was carried back into Damascus where he was at Ananias' home there, and the Lord appeared to Ananias and spoke to Ananias in a vision and told him that he was to go and what he was to do. Remember what it was the Lord told Ananias. He said that Paul was his what? chosen servant. Paul was his chosen, because Ananias was at, was at wit's end. I'm going where? I'm going to go see who? This is the one who just a few days ago was arresting and having put to death Christians. Those who were followers of the way, those who were the followers of Christ, he is the one who was, he was going into homes. Lord, don't you understand? He was going from house to house to house and arresting men and women and breaking up families. He had papers from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to go into Damascus and put an end to this thing. And that's the one you want me to go to? Yes, go because he is my chosen vessel. And Paul knew this from the very moment that Jesus did in fact arrest him, that he was his chosen vessel. In fact, like what else the Lord said, the Lord said, I must show him the things he must suffer for my sake. So he knew he was a chosen vessel, a chosen instrument, set apart from his mother's womb. He tells us that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. For God's eternal purposes. It is this specific calling. Not only calling to salvation by God's sovereign grace. But this specific calling 
that Paul is referring to here called to be an apostle. An apostle in the most general sense is one who is an official messenger of the gospel. And Paul certainly was that, but Paul was much more. In the most technical sense, the the use of the word apostle, the title is in the New Testament when used refers to the disciples of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry who were disciples transitioning into apostles and then to Paul as he was called. And there were certain criteria one with such a technical calling would have to meet. And listen to these criteria. In fact, I've jokingly said to you before that I have met people in, in current day that would come to me and introduce themselves as apostles so-and-so. Hello, this is apostle so-and-so, or this is apostles, or I'm apostle. And they didn't have me business cards that had their name apostle so-and-so on it. And I'm thinking, wow, they don't look 2,000 years old. They've aged well. And I would have liked to have asked them some questions, but there were certain criteria one with such a technical calling would have to meet. Number one, they would have to have seen the resurrected Christ. So I would have liked to have asked them the first question, how did Jesus look, look when you saw him? Well, I better not ask that question because a lot of people we claim to see, have seen him today. One well-known minister, he appeared beside his bed with a, cook of, uh, a pan of freshly baked cookies. So you better not ask that question. They might give you their experience with having seen the resurrected Jesus. But they would have to have seen the resurrected Christ. And then secondly, they had to be personally appointed by Christ to govern the early church. And thirdly, I'll add another one, they taught and wrote, and this is most important, they taught and wrote with authority under direct divine inspiration. They were revelatory agents of the gospel. When they spoke, when they wrote, when they taught, how were they doing it? By their own teaching, by their own minds, by their own ideas? No, they were teaching as the Spirit of God was moving them, was working on them as they were writing, they were writing under divine inspiration. And next in verse 1, Paul goes on to say, he has been set apart for the gospel of God. And this simply signifies Paul's calling as a minister of the gospel. He had been, I like the way the King James puts it. The English Standard Version puts it set apart for. The King James Version uses the word separated. It uses one word. He had been separated from his former life as a Pharisee and persecutor of the faith and was now separated to the gospel. He wasn't merely separated from something. He wasn't merely merely brought out of his Judaism, wasn't merely brought out of his persecution of the faith. He was was separated from that former life, but he was separated to something. He was separated to the gospel of God. When you were saved, when I was saved, we were separated from what we were. We were separated from the things that we were doing, from the life that we were living. Certainly we were separated from that, but we weren't left in a state of static. We were separated from something and separated into something. We were separated from the world and separated to God, to Christ, and to the gospel. What a powerful truth that along with the Apostle Paul, you and I, If we are believers, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, have been called unto the Lord, unto His gospel. And we'll find out more next time right here on Crosswalk Radio. 
Thanks for tuning in today, and please join us again next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.